and he said, okay, now listen to me, folks. If there's one thing that I'm going to teach you, it's that when someone asks you, why are you in education? Don't say because I love teaching is because I love when students are learning. Don't talk about what you like. And it's so funny because we were kicking each other. We were kicking each other because he doesn't know anything about Gemara. And he said, because if you love teaching, that means you like listening to yourself. <laughs> Allegedly convey learning. And you're going to learn subject matter, which is way beyond the grasp of your students because you find that exciting. And we were kicking each other. We think teaching Tysus in seventh grade. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCopyHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Last week, I presented part one of my interview with the famed educator, Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz. This week, I'm proud to offer the second half of our discussion. But before we get there, I have an exciting announcement. This Rosh Hashanah is likely to be the most unusual Rosh Hashanah most of us have ever experienced. Here in Israel, we still aren't sure what the rules will be. And all over the world, people are going to be davening in contexts which are completely different from what they've come to expect. In some ways, in fact, it's probably helpful that Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, and there's only one day of Tekiat Shofar on Sunday. But on that Sunday... A lot of people are going to be blowing shofar on their own or without any guidance that they normally would have from their shuls. And for this reason, I wrote a 10-page PDF that explains the background and halachot of shofar blowing so that no matter where you are on Rosh Hashanah, you'll know exactly what you need to do. Every Jewish Coffeehouse Patreon member will receive a copy for free. And if you're not on Patreon and would like it, just write to me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com, and I'll send you a copy. It costs only $3 and will help everyone, whether you're davening at home or in a synagogue, have a better grasp of the rules of chauffeur blowing. Again, write to scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com and I'll send you a copy and send you the PayPal details. Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz is the founding dean of Yeshiva Darchenom of Muncie and he's published a book entitled Hatchalat Gemara by Rabbi Aaron Spivak. This wonderful book teaches Gemara through methodologies that address the problems that students really do experience. You can purchase the book on Amazon. Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz is an innovative educator, author, and child safety advocate. He's published child safety books that are in 100,000 homes, as well as beginner Gemara and Chumash workbooks. Rabbi Horowitz conducts child abuse prevention and parenting workshops in Jewish communities around the world, and he received the prestigious 2008 Covenant Award in recognition of his contribution to Jewish education. As I mentioned last week, our interview went on for almost two hours and could have continued even longer. Our talk included insights into solutions for helping students enjoy Gemara learning, effective testing and evaluation methodologies, thoughts about when students should begin learning Talmud, whether strong students also require skill building, how Rabbi Horowitz got into teaching, and much more. Also remember that on the Jewish Coffeehouse Facebook page, you can find a Zoom video meeting recorded last week where Rabbi Horowitz gave practical suggestions and demonstrated how his book addresses specific issues. Here is part two of the interview. One of the problems that we used to find, Rabbi Wiliki and I, when it comes to Gemara, is actually the very nature of the subject. It's different from almost any other subject in how it's taught because 
For example, when you're teaching high school math, everyone knows the content doesn't matter. You know, if X plus Y equals 17, I don't really care if X plus Y is 17 or 19. I just care about you understanding how it works. On the other hand, when you're teaching history, at least at the pre-collegiate level, I don't care if you know the methodology of historical analysis. I just want you to understand what happened. When you're doing Gemara, there's this natural tension between understanding the content and understanding the skill of how to learn that content. And very often, one of the biggest problems that I've found is that teachers confuse these and they think they're teaching skills, but when they test, they test exclusively on content. And that means Brilliant. that they're actually going the opposite directions. And this, this tension is so common. It's really a problem, I think, in education. Rev. Scott, that's absolutely brilliant. Really, that's so spot on. Two points on that. One of them is I'm working now on a, on a business plan. It'll probably be six to eight-year project. I want to I make a four-year curriculum for Gemara that kids can- For high school, ninth have, to 12th? Um, actually grade school, fifth through eighth. Uh, okay. And maybe beyond that, and maybe whatever. I'm, we're thinking of a lot of different approaches, but I actually went to a very professional accounting firm to make a professional business plan, how much it's gonna cost layout for a donor. I'm looking for, you know, I didn't have proof of concept until now because I started this project, I mean, we started working on it 19 years ago, but I started publishing Gemara stuff six years ago. But I didn't really have proof of concept. You know, if I go to a donor and I say, I have this, you know, this four-year curriculum that I want to build, who's going to buy a Gemara? So now we're in 100 yeshivas already. Wow. We sold a thousand, almost a thousand of those Leilomitzias books in a few weeks. I didn't even take a single ad yet. So we have proof of concept. I'm looking to create a four-year program. One of the good things about creating a program like that is that it's based on skills. And authentic skills, meaning people often think they're teaching skills, but they're not teaching skills. They're teaching content. Exactly. Right. And, 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 it, and it's more rigorous and it's, it's, it's clear. You know, if you look at a math program, I don't know how it is in Israel, but in the States, third grade, everybody does times tables. Okay, so if you switch from one school to the other, if you go within a school, if there was coronavirus, let's say, and you missed a half a third grade, every parent knows that's been doing homework for a while with their kids. My kids didn't finish times tables. That is third grade math. That's third grade math. And they review it at the beginning of fourth grade and on. So what I'd love to do is to create, what I'm going to do is to create a list of skills Inform the parents, here's what your kids should know after fifth grade. Not how much Gemara. Here are the things that they should be, they should be able to follow, you know, and list the skills as they come. Pag- the pagination to figure out how the page works. And just list these skills, these types of logical skills to be able to extrapolate one from the other. So the idea is what you're saying is so spot on. It's the truth is that we teachers don't have these tools yet. So it's understandable that it's a mishmash. It's just a shame because too many teachers haven't been trained in educational theory or, in, or just in being educators. Why is someone a teacher? Because he loves learning. That's very different. Just because you love learning doesn't mean that you necessarily love teaching. And too often, they can't wait to give their big chiddush and they're talking to eighth graders or it could be even much older than that. They're just not there. They really don't understand the premises on which your chiddush is based. But you want to get over it. You want to get to that. I had the privilege of participating in a three-year Torah Masara leadership program, 
1997, 98, and 99. Two of the years were in Israel. Tarmasari got a very large grant from the Mandel Institute. They have unbelievable leadership programs. And one of, we had a, a non-Jewish fellow, Dr. Ernie Stakowski. And it's funny because he knew nothing about Gemara. And he was talking about teaching and how to build the curriculum and how to build skills. And it was hysterical because we were 18 school principals. I was the only principal wannabe. I had just started my school then, but the others had at least 10 years in being a formal principal. And it's so funny what you said about they love learning. So Dr. Stokowski said, he started out with us. He said, why did you go into education? We had him for six hours a day for a full week. We became his chassidim. It's, a, uh -huh. it's really hysterical. Right. The first shalom aleichem to us was, he says, why did you go into education? We either said because we love learning or we love teaching. You said, so there's two levels, right? You love learning. That doesn't mean you know how to teach, right? You love teaching. And he, then he listened to all of us. And he said, okay, now listen to me, folks. If there's one thing that I'm going to teach you in this week, it's that I don't care what you say, but I want you to think from now on that when someone asks you, why are you in education? Don't say because I love teaching is because I love when students are learning. Don't talk about what you like. And it's so funny because we were kicking each other. We were kicking each other because he doesn't know anything about Gemara. And he said, because if you love teaching, that means you like listening to yourself. <laughs> allegedly convey learning and you're going to learn subject matter which is way beyond the grasp of your students because you find that exciting and we were kicking each other we think teaching Tysus in seventh grade <laughs> so what he's saying is that loving learning means you enjoy learning quietly loving teaching means you enjoy learning out loud but loving for students to understand a concept that has nothing to do with your beautiful chiddush that has to do with making sure that every student understands what that student is supposed to understand and enjoys it. It's a and very he, different concept. And he taught us active participation and lesson planning and check for understanding and, and act, you know, all of the, he used the Madeline Hunter model, but it was hysterical because while and we looked around the room, every <laughs> one of us was doing the same thing. You know, he had no idea what we were thinking about. He was just talking about, he says, he says, you're always going to tend to move towards more advanced stuff. You, teaching skills is boring. He said, but if you care, if your kids learn, he said, I love cooking. Well, did you ever check if the customers are eating? <laughs> Isn't that great? He said, he said, imagine if you had a cook. He says, I love cooking. And the cook never walks out into the dining room and sees if people are eating. They're taking the bite and throwing it out. So he says, you're a cook because I love watching people enjoy dinner. I love it. That's a really, really important point. You know, my colleague Rabbi Wolicki has said that one of the issues in Gemara learning also is that people assume, or I should say what people assume is one of the issues, is that the content is boring. It says, you mentioned before, Rabbi Horowitz, about relevance. But he right. also says he's not so sure that's really true. I think he has an important point. He says people think that the problem is that it's outdated content, but in truth— Sometimes it just has to be reframed in a way which they can appreciate. I don't mean in terms of even modernizing it. That's a separate point. He said you can have a kid who will be completely bored by content. Sure, they're bored by Shoshanagah uh, Tapara. Yep. But on the other hand, they can sit there with a Sudoku puzzle, which has zero content, 
and work on those for hours without getting bored. When you look at Gemara as a puzzle to be decoded, as a code which you have to try and decipher, understanding and being able to crack the code, even if the content isn't so exciting, that's something which can engage people. I think that's a very important point too. I'll take it a step further. How you articulated this, this challenge that we have, one of the things that I, I would do with my students was, I used to compare it to constitutional law. When we would have a Gemara that really drilled deeply and the kids would get bored or roll their eyes or say, when does this ever happen? I, and I did this beforehand. I, I would, if there was something in the newspaper about uh, the gun laws, let's say, the right to bear arms. So I would, I would used to start my lessons usually with something like that on the board. Say the right to bear arms with a quote from the, I, I said, the, the constitution was written a long time ago by, by people that we revere. And the text was small. You know, they didn't write every detail. And things changed since then. And I said, great scholars, some of the most respected people in the country, parsed the words and tried to ascertain what they were thinking about. So we have a respected document, Tyra, that great people, tell me the Chachamim, parsed to find out what would this mean today. And I take it up, right to bear arms. So can you have a submachine gun today? Is that you're allowed, are you allowed to bring an, AK, an AK-47? Define so, arms, define right, define bear. There's all sorts it, of things that exactly. need to be explained and there. Exactly, and it says there's for a militia. So maybe it doesn't mean that, and, and they only had muskets then. They didn't have weapons that fired so rapidly. So, and I, I used to bring clips from that to try to get the kids to respect the process. And I said, the process is Hashem gave us a Torah that is very limited. Keep Shabbos, that's all it says. Our Chachamim gave us instructions. Their instructions weren't detailed for everything, and they couldn't have anticipated electricity or other things like it. This is another thing I used to I used to give the kids to give respect of it. It was a transformational moment for me as a restless kid who didn't learn much in yeshiva. I went to Camp Monk, and Rabbi David Kohn Shlita was gave the highest learning group. Just I mean, he was a young man then. This was forty five years ago. He was in his thirties. I mean, he he. Oh, it's breathtaking listening to him. And what happened was long before Hatzalah, a kid fell and cracked his skull on Shabbos in camp. And they took him, uh, the camp driver pulled up. And this was in front of the whole camp. Like you had people, and Abdavid Khan, 30 seconds, gave them instructions what to do with Shabbos. Hmm. You know, told them how to park your car. Do you take the do keys this, Do this, do this, do this. Gave yeah, them the information three, they needed, right. Go, get out of here, go. Leave. He gave, I don't remember exactly, at least four classes on Shabbos afternoon, he used to give a shear on Shabbos afternoon, which I never attended. That was the vowel, it was for the staff. And, and he announced that he's going to explain what was going through his mind during those 30 seconds. Oh, wow. And he gave at least four classes. On Explaining the 30 seconds of information that he provided. Shuvas that went through his head that he was thinking, and, and none of them had to do with driving cars, obviously, right? Right. And it was such a transformational moment for me. I, I, I understood a little bit of what was going on. But the respect that you learned from seeing this volume of information that he... Pro- and I would speak to my students about that. I would speak to my students on what an impact it had on me. This is what Tamid HaChachamim do. Something happens. There's a new technology. It comes up. We have a question of what to do. Here's what goes through the mind. I said, and even if you don't understand all of it, even if you don't understand all of it, just like you listen to sports and you see, you know, I, this I would tell them, you know, I, I remember 
I, by the way, I read the sports section every single day when I was a Rebbe. I never went to, I used to order the Times. I never went to Yeshiva without reading the sports without section. Without knowing the scores. Because what the kids don't want to know about my mortgage payments, right? I told them I was once watching a double overtime game in the playoffs, and I forgot who it was. It was so long ago. A color commentator was a superstar ball player, and it was double or triple overtime. And he said, he was looking at the game, and he said, look, all the shots that are missing are falling off the front rim because they don't have the legs anymore. So uh -huh. they're not elevating enough. And, you know, I it's said it's falling short, right? All in my, just said, and bang, bang, you just watched, it. you know, and he, he, he was so knowledgeable in every area, I suppose, because he had played for, he was a superstar. So he looked at it so differently than we did. You know, everybody just saw people running back and forth and he was able to introduce a nuance that nobody else would see. And that's why I would bring these examples to the kids about not having legs and double overtime and triple overtime. That's what Abdavid Cohn was doing with these, with this, he's operating on such a different plane. And I used to tell them, you know, I said, there are people who would watch the game and not even appreciate front rim, back rim, yeah, whatever. I said, you could be a student of the game, not know a hundredth of what that ball player knew, but you can, when you hear him say this, it starts increasing your knowledge of what the game is all about. You know enough to appreciate what he's saying, even though you didn't see it yourself. So that's what I would tell the kids. So I would tell the kids there are many levels of, I, I said, I'm trying to get you, you just started Gemara. I want to get you to a place where you'll appreciate a chap. A chap is, you know, Yiddish for a, 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 so I said, I want to try to make you a student of Gemara. I said, I'm, I, when you leave this classroom, I, I, don't, I don't expect you to know Gemara well, but I'm going to try to teach you some finer points to make you a student of the game, just like you would appreciate when you get into this level. To have children respect the process, what you said about the process and the steps and the fact that you're not going to get there right away and it's a lifetime of learning. But my 15-year-old eyes opened up to watching a master, watching a superstar crack this down. It was unbelievable. It was a transformational moment, I, I'm sure. I, I don't remember one bit anybody said. I just remember my jaw dropping. Saying, you remember the experience. I remember the watching a master. You know, my excitement translates to the kids. I said, you know, you see Gamari, you see people at Shia saying, ah, what a shot. You know, that's what they're doing. I said, you can get there. You can get, you can get easily to a place where you'll start appreciating Gamara. It doesn't mean that you'll get to Reb David's level. It doesn't mean that you're going to get there. It means you're in the game right now. The sad thing is that when the children don't have an organized way of thinking and when it's exactly what you said, Reb Scott, when it's measured on how well they know those lines rather than talking about it, I now realize how to extrapolate one step from the skills that you were talking about, that you're of the Rebbe, your, your partner. What was his name? Rabbi Willicki. Rabbi Willicki. Rabbi Pesach Willicki. Rabbi Pesach, introduce me to him, please, next time I'm in Israel. Absolutely. I'd love to meet him. What he spoke about there, it's, it's the process of getting the children to that stage and the model that we're following it's historically unprecedented that all kids learn Gemara. It wasn't like this. Talk to everybody in Europe. You know, the people go to Velazhin. I just spoke to my Mechutin. We were just talking over another milestone. Our first grandchild got by mitzvah this past Shabbos. Mazal tov. So I was sitting with my Mechutin, and we were talking. He just mentioned that he, he what a schus, what a schus. 
So he went to he went back to Volozhin, which is one of the one of the top cities in Europe in in terms of yeshivas. One of the things that Americans or and not Americans anybody visiting, you notice how small these buildings were. Right? They don't tell you this, right? You think of Volozhin like it must have been a few hundred thousand square feet. It was this tiny right. little. The way they describe it, you think these must be giant campuses. One percent, two percent of the people were in advanced yeshivas. I spoke to you. I mean, look, I'm older than you. I, you know, my parents, my parents didn't live through the Holocaust, but I, I had this course of speaking to that, those generations. And, and people were poor. They couldn't afford to, who could afford to have a 13-year-old kid uh, who was able to work in the fields? Not, not you know, not. So they Go off to, to some yeshiva somewhere and learn. You, you couldn't yeah, do that. That's not how it worked. Right. So, right. so, so the, the yeshivas were meant for the top 2% of our yeshiva, of the, of the student body. So when a Rebbe taught those kids, those kids knew Mishnah called already. They were sleeping in the ladies' section of the shuls on a bench right. and eating suppers at different tag. They ate at different people's they houses. They right. They were eating at different people's houses. There was no kitchen. It wasn't how it worked. When there was right. food. And right. most of the time they went to sleep hungry because they were so... They were dying to learn Torah. So to those kids, the model of the yeshiva... But that was the 1%. That wasn't the everybody. So thankfully, thankfully, we can afford the luxury of having 10-year-olds learn Gemara. But that means you have to realize that we're not teaching to that 1% or 2% anymore. So the people who say, what do you mean they used to learn? Of course they did. The people in yeshivas then did. Thanks a lot. But and, And the people that say... You know, Elif Nichnas Ve'echad Yaitza, you know, famous Gemara that, that it's a thousand people, it's worth sending them into the base Medrash, that one should emerge. So I say, if you believe that, then don't complain if 999 become a Chal Shabbos. You know, right. these guy, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you say that we have to produce Gedolim, I don't believe that that's how it works. I think you, you have time for that later. But if, if you're saying that we're gearing our schools to, to even the top two-thirds, then you have to be willing that the bottom third, including your grandchildren and my grandchildren, should be written off. And I don't think we're ready for that. So Rabbi Horowitz, it's Arab Shabbos here in Israel. It's Arab Shabbos <laughs> yes. for you as well, but it's getting close to Shabbos. And as you probably can see, I could talk to you literally all day long about this. I said that before this. we started. I have just a couple questions before we go, if you can give me another few minutes. Please, sure. So my first question is this, based on what you just said, at what age do you think students should start learning Gemara, assuming that we do want to teach all kids Gemara in general? Where should it start? Because I've often felt with my own kids that they begin too early. There's an assumption that kids learning Gemara, whatever grade it is, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, whatever it might be, simply they're not intellectually developed enough to learn it at that age at the proper level, meaning if they would start at a later grade. I don't know if it's ninth grade or 10th grade or after high school. I don't know. But whatever the age is, when they're more prepared, would they really lose that much by starting later? Because frankly, a lot of kids, what they learn in Gemara when it's taught too early is how much they hate Gemara. And because of that, maybe are we actually doing a disservice by emphasizing Gemara in the younger grades? What do you think? My standard line is too early too much, too fast. Too early, too much, too fast. That's my real honest thinking. And I'm, God forbid, not 
knocking. It's not my stino. That's not my style. I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just saying it comes for the, all the right reasons. I think we're starting too early. I think we're learning too much with them. And they think we're starting too fast. Let me tell you this. You know, Dr. Stokowski taught us about how to make a real curriculum, you know, and a program. And I started this with the Rabbeim in my yeshiva. I really did this. I, I don't know if I ever spoke about this publicly, but um, I, I asked the Rabbeim, when we made a curriculum for our yeshiva, Rabbi Chaim Foyman coached us through this. I asked them as follows. I said, when would you introduce Gemara or Chumash or Mishnah or whatever, when you did this syllabus, if we had an elementary school in Hawaii that had its own Masifta that was an orphanage, God forbid. So you have no parents, you have no community pressure because you're the only school in town, and your kids are going, the elementary school kids are all going to the same Masifta without a Bechina, without a Feher. When would so you're you- not competing against anybody else. It's not about that. This is the control group of pure education as it should be. What would you do educationally sound? It was not anywhere near what we're doing today. And then I struggled with it because even though, let's say I decided that this is the right way to start later, I think that I wouldn't be able to get my kids into high school. And if a kid moved to Muncie and came to my yeshiva or my kid moved to a different place, if a seventh grader of mine moved to Philadelphia, went to yeshiva there, and let's say we learned very little Gemara, I think they should learn much more Mishnah beforehand. I think they should do every single Rashi in the Shvatim that teaches this type of you know logic and stuff. Some would say I went out and I didn't do what I really thought was educationally right. What I did was, I'm a pragmatic person, so the policy, the official policy of our yeshiva was first and fifth grade, no odamina. Beginner Chumash and beginner Gemara, I don't care if the Rabbeim taught five Pesukim in first grade or five lines of Gemara in fifth grade. Obviously, they learned more, but we learned much less during those years. It was fundam- all about fundamentals. And the other years, I had to do more or less what the other schools are doing. And, and I even had to, I realized after a while, I had to market it. I used to tell parents when they registered that this is what we're going to do when they came to see the school. And I said, if you don't, not happy with it, don't come here. I said, by the time they're in eighth grade, they'll be able to take a high school examination anywhere and do well. And over the years, my kids wound up learning a little less Gemara, a little bit. But the high school principals were all telling me that my kids understood the Gemara, the mechanics of the Gemara much better. So that's the short answer. I, I, I think it's like a nuclear arms race, you know, because like, the schools compete with each other, and it's all because of parents. The parents, you know, well, you try to get your kid into a yeshiva that they can't do well in. You know, it's crazy. You know, in my yeshiva, which was post-high school, Yeshiva University has something called, or they did have something called the Masmidim program, which Shantamani, is really for ex- exceptional learners. Right. And we were honored that three of our graduates were accepted into the Masmidim program right. Right. over the course of the 11 years we were open. And of those three students who were accepted, one of them went to a regular yeshiva high school in New York. The other two both went to Orthodox schools that were really more or less community schools. They were run Orthodox, but they were community schools, which means they did less Gemara, almost certainly, than the vast majority of our students. And yet, they were the ones who, one of them is the one who got the Scarlet A, by the way. They were the ones who got into Masmidim because in some ways, sadly, they had fewer bad habits to break. They were also obviously motivated and intelligent and wonderful people too. That's 
I'm not taking any credit away, right, right. but in some level, it just shows that what are we really gaining by teaching all this Gemara when they go to yeshiva for a year in Israel or two years, and they are ahead of where everybody else is, even after two years of yeshiva. And if I could teach in 55 minutes, if I could teach you how to learn a Mishnah, last time we spoke about my work with teens at risk, you know, and so because of that work, I had close relationships with an excess uh, to, to the leading gedolim uh, of the Moetzis Gedolim members of, of America because I would be asked when we first started, it was a, a project of Agudas Yisrael, Rabbi Shara started it. So I used to, I used to talk to, to, I once went, I had a, at a meeting of the Moetzis, I asked the Rosh Yeshiva to please, it was a pretty, you would think it's like a chutzpah thing to request, you know, like I was being, I was being a little too uh, pushy or, or, or right. I said, Rashi Shiva, I'm begging you, please tell the parents of average kids not to try to get into the top high schools. They will listen to you. I told Rashi Shiva this. But that's I a said, tough sale. That's a tough sale. I said, please tell them that they shouldn't try to get into Philadelphia. You know, it was a Shiva. I said, they won't do well. They'll get frustrated there, and they they'll call protectia and they'll try to squeeze them in. I uh, always tell parents it's not getting them into high school; it's getting them to high school where they'll succeed. Guess what the reaction was? I don't want to guess. What did they say? The Novominsky Rebbe Zatzal told me, in such frustration, he said they don't listen to us. I promise you, he said. He that. agreed with you. He says, he of course all, that's true. All nodding their heads. All the, Rav Tamzatzal was alive. Rav so many of them are in Ganadin. They were around the table. They were saying, we tell them. They don't listen to us. He says, I tell them, why are you trying to stop your kids into this yeshiva? They're not going to do well. No, we want them to do the shtarka island and the shtarka. He said, but if they're not, we're gonna, he said, that's what he told me. He said, they don't listen to us. Our yeshiva, we're very proud of what we did. We weren't a big name yeshiva. We were a skills yeshiva. Yep. And sometimes certain parents who had certain expectations for their kids, when they'd send their kid to our yeshiva, it was the first time, I remember one, one wonderful kid, it was the first time he ever enjoyed learning. So right. his parents' reaction was, after one year with us, oh good, now we can send him to a different yeshiva. Now can- <laughs> the kid fought and came back for Shanabet to us, but it was almost like, He's finally, for the it's first time, enjoying learning. He's Shomer Shabbos. He's, he's enjoying Judaism. And so your reaction is great. Now we can send him to where we really want to Let's send get him. him out. I'll just say one That's more great. point about that, which is that another student who was very strong, who did not go to a Jewish high school, good from kid, came to us. And he did learn, admittedly, with his father. So he came with some nice skills. But he right. then studied with us and he applied for the Maspedim program. As it turned out, he didn't get in. But he was a very, very strong student. One of the people testing him, when they asked him where he went to high school and how did he learn to learn, and he said that he didn't go to yeshiva high school, that he went to whatever high, a public high school, the particular rabbi, a very well-known person, said, this student is an indictment of our system because he was able to get this far, and students who are in the system don't get further, or maybe, obviously, some do, but the fact that that can happen shows we're not doing things the way that we should— how do we make sure that the quote-unquote skill shear, which is often a euphemism for a lower-level shear, isn't considered the remedial shear, the shear where they throw the guys who have lower skill level or who don't show as much ability or who are behavioral problems altogether? Sometimes it turns into just this big mix 
of students who have completely different issues of why they're not succeeding in school. The top shear, those are the kids who enjoy Gemara and do well in Gemara or who push to get into that shear. The bottom shear, very often, is kids who don't like it or kids who do like it but aren't good at it or kids who are just stuck there because they can't find any other place for them. I find this to be a constant problem. Have, have you seen this as well? Sure. And I think the answer is that all kids should be learning this way. All kids should be learning this way, especially the top kids. <laughs> That's been my point. I've been talking about this for the past 15 years. Exactly that point. Right. And, and, and if you look, it's so sad because the smart kids, quote-unquote, are the ones who are going to be the Rabbanim and the Rashi Yeshiva. And, and they need to learn the fundamentals also. They're winging it. They're playing golf like I do. They're learning like I play golf, like you do music. That they're winging it. They weren't taught, you know, taught. They weren't taught the fundamentals. Many of them weren't. And, and, and just to follow on that, two quick points. I'm really going to try to be short. I just sent an email. I have an email list. I just sent an email. The title was, We Learned much more Gemara than them. I wrote the story of one of the transformational moments for me. We went to Tarvadas, so we had, in elementary school, we had about 30, 35 kids, two classes. In high school, it all of a sudden ballooned to 100, 100 mm -hmm. kids, 95 kids, because there weren't that many Masifetists in America at the time. So people came from Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, and from, you know, South Bend, Indiana. There were no high schools anywhere. There were Tarvadas, Mirchai, Berlin. There weren't too many. And we got a lot of day school kids. So we were yeshiva guys. We had already learned the 30, 40 block Gemara, pages of Gemara. And these day school kids were in co-ed schools. And they learned two pages of Gemara. Right. And we were like... We'll show them, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're the all-stars. Exactly. And these are the rookies coming up from the minor leagues, yeah, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll be nice to them. We'll be Makar of them. <laughs> and as long as I live, I'll never forget this. And then Revy said, like a few weeks into the year... Okay, boys, prepare the next three lines of Gemara on your own. And all the local Tarvadas, New Yorkers, all the New York kids, we were clueless. We were clueless. I did not realize this. It took a while to process, and it took me a decade to incorporate that thinking into my, into my you know, I was a kid. Was, I was, you know. We all went to the day school kids. I went to a kid from Boston who went to Maimonides. That's my alma mater. So. Oh, get yeah. out of here, really? I'm a Mimo grad. I'm almost sure it was Maimonides. <laughs> I'm almost sure. I did not know that. So, can you teach me some Gemara? <laughs> <laughs> so, so this kid was sitting there, and three, four of us New Yorkers were, were, were sitting you around. You experienced learners, right. And he, and he patiently taught us how to learn Gemara. And it was the same for Chumash. I did not realize it at the time. But when I started teaching and I was trying to help my kids, I don't know how Hashem put it in my mind. I had a flashback. I said, you know what I said? I remember thinking it. I said, I need Duick was his name. I need Duick here. <laughs> <laughs> I need him here. I wish he would be here to teach my students. That was one of my transformational moments. So what you're saying is so correct. The kids that are supposedly the top students might need it even more, as you said, than the kids who are not. Right. They're the ones who are going to be learning full time. They're the ones who are going to be in cold. They're the ones who are going to be writing svarim. They're the ones who are be lecturing. Why shouldn't they understand how to do it? One final point, and just this is my just advice to parents. If your kids right now today are not struggling, are struggling in the tomorrow, they don't get it, or that they're 18 years old and fed up and all this, 
one of the things that I did in my, and there's a lot of educational terms I could throw at you to explain that I didn't know any of them at the time. It was just criminal. I, I started teaching at 22. I loved teaching. I didn't realize that I should have wanted to love kids learning. And I only started teaching because I was a, I was a counselor. I went to Camp Tarvadas. I wanted to, I was on the basketball team and I wanted to play a lot of ball. So, so I asked for the job that has the least work. So it was a one hour a day learning. Every day. <laughs> I was 17 years old. Kidding. No kidding. All kidding. Yeah, it's the truth. Um, it's an honorable I reason. I, I respect that. <laughs> yeah. So I went to, I went to the learning director and I told him, I, I figured, what do they need me for? So I said, give me the five kids that gave you nightmares last year. Because <laughs> I figured I wasn't that learned at the time. I said, what are they going to run me out of town? These kids are going to know more than me. So I said, give me the five. Then I have no expectations. Right. Nobody's going to bother me. No one's going to bother you because if, what's if the worst that happens? They don't jail, learn anything. No one expects anything from it anyway. Keep them right. out of jail, if I keep them out of jail, I'll be good. I, I really, that was my thinking. So, so I got that. He said, oh, you kid, really? Yeah, so it's a suicide. Wow. Right? And th we found the, the friar. Terrible. <laughs> I was willing to take it. The first few days were terrible. This is a true story. The first few days were terrible. But I was on the basketball team. So the first game, the kids came and they said, oh, Rebbe's on the team. They had a whole song, Yankee the Reb, or whatever, whatever. So when I, like the next morning, they were like all on time. They wanted to be friendly with me because I was on the team. I had a great time. And I, I just fell in love with it. I just fell in love with teaching. And that's how you got into teaching? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And I was in college pre-med. That's a sore subject. But it was a sore subject with my mother till her, till her theater. <laughs> my wife thought I was going to, I was going to be an oral surgeon when we were dating. But I just realized, you know, they say Dick Butkus said that you're a football player, right? You know, some people are meant to be accountants, some people lawyers. I was meant to hit people on the football field. <laughs> you know, I just realized that this is what this is what I was meant to do. You were meant to get students to love learning. Students who didn't like learning to love learning. Wow. Um, really, it was, I just fell in love with it. But one of the things that I, I really encourage parents to do, and, and, and again, like I said at the beginning, uh, beginning of this talk, you know, I did not know the educational words for it at the time. But just intuitively, the first year, it was 1982. My first students are 51 now, are 51 years old, because um, I was 22, 23, and they were 13. I gave a test. Every single kid failed badly. Or as I would have said at the time, not to the kids, of course, but if their grade was the temperature outside, you'd need a winter coat. Okay? <laughs> okay. You know, and I didn't want to give them back to the kids because I knew they'd be crushed and I didn't want to put marks on it. So I took the test and I reformatted it so there were three separate tests and each one graded on a hundred, one to a hundred scale. And I, I made it, I think actually I'm embarrassed to say, I think I did give out the first one or two of them. And then, you know, it hit me that this is not working yet. Yeah, just, I remember, I remember sitting at my desk late at night after the kids were sleeping and I just, I just didn't want to give this out. And what I did is I made one test on translation one test test on general questions of Gemara, and then one test on following the bouncing ball of the logical, you know, statement, right? We said at the beginning, right? How step much? To step to step, exactly. Step by right. step by step. Following the bouncing ball. And then I gave it to the kids. And I will never, ever forget another transformational moment. Every kid passed one section. 
You did something very important there. And they were different sections. Some kids aced the translation and didn't know a flip about those steps. Some of them knew the general information because they picked up by osmosis, but they didn't know the other two well. And some of them they did, they did terribly on. And all of a sudden, it became diagnostic. And I, I, was, I don't know how I thought of it. I was a kid. I was a baby. And these That's kids, beautiful. I, That's I, exactly the point. Diagnostic. They were than me. I was terrified of them. I had 26 kids. I, you know. But what I, what I did was it became diagnostic. And I said, I'm handing back the test now. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to meet with each of you to develop a plan for how you should be continuing. And we'll talk about it. And, and I said, it might be to build on your weaknesses. It might be just to ignore your weaknesses for now and build on your strengths. So all of a sudden, the kids said, I'm not a loser. Because they, if you took all the three scores together, they would fail. This would be my advice to parents. If your kids are frustrated, try to help them understand. The kids know that they're bright, that they could do other things. Help them understand why they're not doing it and, and take the different components. When a kid comes home and says, I hate Gemara, tell me, what do you like and what do you hate? Are there any parts of the Gemara that you like? That's what I do when teenagers, when parents call me, my kid's dropping out. Is that, is it, talk to them about why. Like, I don't know these kids. They call me from Chicago. What am I? I don't know. So I said, L listen better. Call me back after you ask them, what do you like? What don't you like? Don't take it as just one big blob of stuff you don't know. And that requires the parent to actually parent and to say, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's really figure right. out, do you really hate everything? Is there right. anything we can find exactly. that you like? Let's what build upon that and figure out a methodology subject, to figure the others. What subjects within Lamudei Kodesh? You don't like Gemara, do you like Navi? Do you like Halacha? And that's an entirely different discussion, for, hopefully for a different time. As I've mentioned repeatedly, I could go on all day talking to you. I really appreciate your time. I went through the book. You sent me a sample, and it, it's absolutely fantastic. Hatchalat Kamara by Rabbi Aaron Spivak, publishers Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz. Just a wonderful, wonderful work. And Mazal Tov on publishing it. Mazal thank Tov you so on your much. 40th anniversary. And thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Remember to write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com if you would like to purchase The Laws of Tekiyat Shofar for only $3. All Patreon members receive it for free, along with lots of other bonus material from Jewish Coffee House. The Patreon link is in the description of this episode. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. <laughs>